and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm your host, Laura Cox Kaplan. Neri Martinez, our guest today, is the executive director of the Future Majority Project at the Republican State Leadership Committee. Now, said another way, Neri is responsible for recruiting women and diverse candidates to run for office. In this role, she not only recruits, but also trains candidates to run for state-level offices. It's fair to say that Neary knows a thing or two about what makes women decide to run for office and what still holds them back. Neary, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So delighted to have you. So what is the Future Majority Project? So the Future Majority Project is an initiative of the Republican State Leadership Committee to recruit and support women and minority candidates for state-level office. And so we recruit uh, for state legislature, secretary of state, and lieutenant governor races, and we work in the 50 states uh, to try to reach out to each one of these uh, potential uh, candidates in these seats. So how did it start? Is this a new initiative or is this something that's been around for some time? And, and why did it start? Yeah, so the initiative, um, it's a Future Majority Project and Right Women Right Now. So it's both uh, the outreach to diverse candidates and female candidates. It started under the chairmanship when uh, Chairman when Ed Gillespie was chairman of the Republican State Leadership Committee, and uh, Matt Walter was political director of the committee. Matt Walter is currently the president, and under their leadership, this initiative uh, began as an effort to help more women and Hispanic candidates get uh, past the finish line, if you will. And uh, $5 million was invested in a number of these candidates to help them out in the 2011 and 2012 cycle. In 2013, they brought me on board as an in-house Future Majority Project Director. And the idea was to really expand upon this initiative and consider recruitment strategies so that we are able to proactively and aggressively get more women and minority candidates on the ballot so that we would be able to have more people to invest in year to year. We have focused on open and target races, and therefore most of the recruitment is happening in the 50 states where we are trying to target particular seats and chambers. There are a number of candidates that we try to be supportive of that are not in target seats, but we focus on these seats because we're not just interested in candidates. We are interested in elected officials. We want women to run and to win. So we are focused on recruiting women to win in the seats where Republicans are going to win. And that has really been the key strategy is to focus on the seats where everybody's going to invest in or where a Republican is likely to win so that we have more elected officials uh, that are serving in the legislature. We believe that this is both the right thing to do and also the smart thing to do. Mm -hmm. So it is the right thing to do because we need more women serving in state level office. We need more diversity in our caucuses and in our party. And it is the smart thing to do because through this initiative, we have actually been able to win seats that were previously held by Democrats, many of them male Democrats. And we've been able to help elect new candidates, which are female and minority, uh, to these seats. And therefore, it's been a good political strategy. It has been good for the party. And it's been good for the nation as a whole. Mm -hmm. 
So Neri, I know you have a real passion for this work and diversity, the need for diversity may seem pretty obvious to some people, but it's not obvious to everybody. Why is it something you're passionate about? Why does diversity, as it relates to the political parties, in this case, the Republican Party, why mm -hmm. does it matter? Diversity is important for the strength of any organization. It's important for the strength of any company, and it's important for the strength of the country and the party. And it's not about this quote-unquote identity politics. It is about not leaving money on the table, is the way I see it. If you have Stand talent... On that. Tell, tell me what you mean by that. Talent comes in all shapes and sizes. One of the reasons why we consider talent talent is because it comes in all shapes and sizes. You can't just have homogeny for growth. Growth is naturally happening when you have a new and dynamic factors that are influencing, you know, your strategy. You have growth by expanding. And in order to expand, you have to expand to new communities. You have to expand to people with different backgrounds, different perspectives, different ideas on things. And the way that you define talent is largely who a person is and what they bring to the table. And if they are a new type of leader and they bring something new to the table, then you're not excluding yourself from that particular type of talent. Therefore, you are, through this inclusion, growing as an organization. And that is why I believe diversity is important. It's not about checking the box. We have enough women here, or we have now an African-American leader or Hispanic leader, and check, 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 we've checked the box. This is not what this is about. And every Fortune 500 company, every major company, whose sole purpose is to increase in profits and increase in value to their shareholders, they are not community organizations. Companies are intended to grow financially. They have adopted diversity initiatives in their own organizations in order to create more value to the shareholders and in order to increase their profits. Very similarly, the Republican State Leadership Committee has always been very progressive in their political strategy. We are gaining seats from Democrats and democratically held seats. We control 69 of 99 legislative chambers, and we have grown immensely in the past decade. And one of the reasons why we have grown is because we don't leave this talent at the table. We are inclusive and we try to help the caucuses bring in the best leader possible for that district so that that person makes the party stronger and makes their district stronger. And this kind of strategy is implemented by almost every Fortune 500 company. If you look at it from a political point of view, and I come from the private sector, so it's kind of the way that I look at it, uh, the shareholders are the voters, you know? And when you bring in the best candidate for the district, then you increase the value to the shareholders, which are the voters. The voters get to have a better representation at the Capitol, and we benefit from that party branding. And in increasingly, more and more organizations are noticing that the more diversity they bring to the table, the greater pockets of communities they can bring to their side. And that is you know, I think the method for successful and sustainable growth and why it's important to continue uh, this sort of culture in any organization. 
That's great. Thank you. So you talked a bit about progress that's been made, beginning to move the needle. That's really terrific and must be very, very gratifying. But let's talk about some of the most significant factors that still impact your work. What's the hardest part about what you do? I would say, unfortunately, the hardest part about what I do is to convince women that they belong. That is the hardest part. Um, It's a little bit of work to try to find, you know, the best candidate for the district, particularly when you're looking for a minority candidate in a majority white seat or, you know, you're trying to find somebody that is a small business owner and or, or community leader that has never been involved in politics and to convince them to run for politics. You know, these these are hurdles. They're natural hurdles. We've been very successful at overcoming these hurdles and we've been very successful at, you know, establishing good metrics around it. But the hardest part really is just convincing everyday women to run for office. Mm-hmm. And it's difficult because it doesn't really matter the background of that person, you know? Um, if the person is male, and that male can be Hispanic, African American, you know, white, Indian American, you know, Native Nation, they can be from Oregon, Arkansas, New York, California, Texas, Kansas, men will almost automatically say yes to running for office, and or they don't require any recruitment. Mm-hmm. They're ready to run. They've been planning this for many years. (laughs) They've already seen themselves as a politician. And that is um, not the same with women. And again, it doesn't matter if the woman is African-American, Hispanic, Indian-American, Native Nation, Caucasian, from Oregon, from Texas, from New York, from California, older, younger, with kids, without kids, in their career, at-home mom. It doesn't matter. So why, Neri, from your perspective? Uh, there, there's a number of things I want to follow up because you, you talked about a lot there. But but in particular, why do you think this is the case? And this is certainly not the first time yeah. any of us are hearing this, but the perspective of why you think that's the case. And what do you do to convince that woman? Once you've identified that she, you think she'd be a great candidate, how do you then help her over that hurdle? I try not to make assumptions Um, outside of my own opinions about why people decide to not run for office or to run for office. Therefore, I ask a lot of questions. When I recruit a woman and I say, I believe that you should run for this office, if she tells me no, I will ask her why. And so I would say my answer to this question is largely the answers that I have received, and I'll just list a few of them out. Mm-hmm. One of the answers I have gotten is, I am not ready. Another answer has been, I think someone else is better. Another answer has been, I am not a policy expert. Then there is, I'm not really sure I can raise the money. I don't know if I have the political savvy to deal with this or to put my family through this. I don't know if I have the time. All of these are valid in her own mind, but they're all different versions of the same thing. And 
oftentimes when we go through this process with a potential recruit, we find that the hurdle is not so much uh, physical or unovercomable, like, you know, I, I can't drive to the capital or I can't afford to quit my job or my mother's very ill and I'm taking care of her. These are very real scenarios in which women in finding balance in their lives have to make certain decisions to include some things and cut other things out. But out of all the responses that I've given, more than half of them are different versions of the same thing, is that I am not equipped to be in politics. I'm not qualified. I am not qualified. Mm -hmm. And... When I get five different versions of the same thing, I start to understand maybe this is the root cause. Mm -hmm. So we go through the process of why this woman feels that she is not qualified. And when we go through that process after the recruitment conversations, she begins to realize she is. And I'll tell you how I've, some of the tactics I've employed. Um, I was talking to a woman once um, in a state where the caucus had made it a big priority for them to recruit as many women as possible. Uh, most of the caucus leaders are men, and they were all convinced that the ticket to success was to recruit all the women. So there was no hurdle in terms of uh, who was doing the recruitment. Everyone was on the same page. They had even identified some phenomenal women that for them would be ideal candidates. And so I said, well, why don't we bring all the women uh, one by one, we'll have individual meetings with each one of them at, uh, at a location and we'll have a conversation with each one back to back. So what happened to me in this day, it was a very intense process of having the same conversation over and over and over again. And this is how it would begin. First, I employed a tactic whereby I sat at the head of the table and the men that were very graciously hosting me that day sat at the side tables and I had the Uh, potential recruits sit at the other end of the table. Mm -hmm. And so she knew it was a conversation between she and I. Mm -hmm. And um, And the two of you were in charge of the conversation. And the two of us were in conversation. But I also uh, forced her to take charge of her own conversation in in that scenario. So I set it up that way. And I began to ask her some questions. And when I got the answer of, I don't think I'm the best person for this district – my response would be, well, with all due respect, Mrs. So-and-so, if you were not the best person, I would be speaking with somebody else. Now, wouldn't I? Well, <laughs> so you're if really you put it that way. Putting the screws to them. <laughs> yes, yes. And she would sit up right and she would start to see the conversation differently. There was another scenario where she said, um, I think somebody else could do this and my response was well uh, with all due respect to mrs so-and-so the gentlemen here that are so graciously hosting me and myself who have come in all the way from dc to come to talk to you today etc etc you know uh we all believe and we have done the research that proves that you are absolutely the best person for this district now I'm not going to tell you that you have to run, but if you decide not to run, then I have to go seek second best. So there you go. You're the best. And if you say no, then I have to go find second best. And now you put me in a position where I have to settle for someone lesser than you for this district. This is taking, what you're describing, you're taking a very direct 
approach to telling her, you're the person we want, we think you're capable, we know you can do this. How often is, is this the case, Neri, where you have to ask a female, not only ask a female candidate, but really have a, a tough conversation with her? Is that every time? Is that three quarters of the time? One out of five? There is a three to seven step recruitment process. Okay, to talk, talk about that. Yeah. Sometimes it's only three questions I have to ask to get her to say yes. Sometimes it's seven different steps I have to do to get her to say yes. So it really all depends. Mm-hmm. There are some occasions where a very ambitious woman, you know, just decided she would run her own. She didn't ask permission of anybody except maybe her family. And, uh, and off she went and we just connected with her. But that is often not the case. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I think there is still a stigma, maybe, uh, or a hurdle in that sense. But I think the hurdle is mental. Either, you know, um, either there is some kind of uh, victim mentality whereby I don't know if I should run because the odds are stacked against me. Mm. You know, Uh, you know, this... uh, this idea that it's going to be harder for me because I'm a woman. So I don't know if I'm ready to make my life harder on me. So that's not necessarily true, you know? I mean, sometimes it's harder, sometimes it's easier. Uh, When men run for office, they have to, you know, raise money and knock on doors just like everybody else. Um, But maybe the woman believes that it's going to be harder for her. Mm -hmm. Maybe she believes that... um, she really isn't qualified. Uh, Maybe she believes that she needs to have a master's in public policy before she becomes a policy maker. Maybe she believes that she needs to be, um, I don't know, in some other kind of position. I was told about uh, a condition um, recently called imposter syndrome. Oh, right. We talk about that a lot on this podcast. We talk about a lot of (laughs) imposter. We talk about this a lot, where a lot of women have reached very successful on paper, you know, have become very successful and for some reason feel like they don't belong or at any point in time, someone's going to find out that they're not qualified and is going to say, who let you in here? Mm -hmm. And this is very common and I think that might be part of it too. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and if they run for office, then for sure they are 100% exposed for the fraud that they have been, the con <laughs> that is their talent. How dare you? You should yeah, be here. Yes. Yeah. And and they're afraid that, you know, if I do something really big like run for office, then everybody will definitely know that I'm a fraud. I'm going to be in front of people and they're going to ask me questions and I'm not going to know the answer. And then they're going to ask me to make policy or they're going to drop some negative mail piece and I'm going to crumble. And most women don't actually do all that. They just, in their mind, they feel like that's how the process is going to go. Mm-hmm. Now, you, if you notice, once a woman is already in elected office, it's not a difficult process to get her to run for something higher. Mm-hmm. But to get her to run for office that first time, it, it really is a lot of mental hurdles. So, so let's talk about, I mean, as you know, I'm, I am actively involved and very passionate about Running Start, which mm-hmm. is an organization that helps get young women interested in running even at the student body uh, government level, mm-hmm. how important do you think that is to get women or young women um, started thinking about that notion of elected service? And do you think it makes a difference as it, you know, once that young woman who's been a student body president or in student body office in some capacity, once she grows up, do you think it will be easier for you to recruit her? Do you think she'll be more likely to volunteer, for example, or maybe your conversation won't take as much, you won't have to put the screws to her quite as much? It's absolutely critical. 
I cannot understate how critical it is because the hurdle is always psychological. And if you are able to break that hold early on and later she has the opportunity to build her resume as a professional woman, but the hold was never there, then it's likely a recruitment process may never need to happen, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, And that's why I'm involved in organizations like Running Start, Mm -hmm. you know, organization that we're both very passionate about. And that's why I love their hashtag, I look like a politician, Mm -hmm. because that's really what it's about. Women have to look at themselves in the mirror and say, I too can lead, you know, I too am qualified, and maybe I'm more qualified. And if I'm not, I'm still going to go for it. I had, um, uh, it was a quote, and it's something I've always believed in, but I remember it was one of those uh, panels that uh, we were we were on, and um, I believe it was uh, Jennifer Lawless, you know, that said, the day that we have even average women running for office, then I think we've achieved parity, you know? <laughs> and I thought that was really funny because women always feel like they need to be absolute superstars before they make one tiny move. And men feel like they were born superstars and they can make all the moves they want. And that's not to say that that men are less or more qualified than women. People are very different, you know? And people have talent that is unique to them. And everybody should be given an opportunity to at least get in the game, you know. But the idea that you can't or that you uh, don't belong because you're a woman is completely fabricated in your own mind. So I'm completely with you on the psychological aspects. And I think that's a you've done a great job of explaining how that works. But let's talk about a couple of other factors that, you know, I have always heard somewhat exacerbate those issues that might already be there. And one is that women sometimes feel like they're treated differently mm-hmm. on the campaign trail. And look, it's true. They are judged differently. They have to contend with what they're wearing, how much they weigh, what mm-hmm. their hair looks like, it, you know, lots of issues. In addition to family considerations, mm-hmm. which tend to affect women more than men. So talk a little bit about those two factors as well and how significant or not you think they are. I would never um, state that it is a different, that is the same process for men and women to run for office. It is not. It is not the same path for any professional woman than it is for a professional man. It is not. Um, And without elaborating on exactly how each one of those paths are different for women and men, there is only one thing that you need to remember. You can only worry about what you can control. What you cannot control you cannot worry about. But what you can control, you control as much of that as you possibly can. And, you know, if you're stepping into something where the environment is that way, you know, um, a certain way that you don't like, you know, it's very hard to change the weather, but you can certainly put on a raincoat. Mm -hmm. And those are the things that um, will allow a woman to navigate uh, her individual hurdles in running for office. For some women, it's harder than others. For others, the races are just much more higher profile. 
for uh, for some the races are very low profile for some women they have to raise you know 10 million dollars minimum to run for office and for others it's 10,000 and so on and so forth you know as far as what she's wearing who she is what she's doing that largely depends on the competitive of the race now for the very ambitious women and uh, very ambitious women listening to this podcast i will tell you the more hurdles that you are facing the more the bigger the stakes right So the more uh, problems you have, right? More money, more problems, right? The more more risk you take, the bigger the reward. And the bigger the stakes, the more important you're rolling in. So if you're in a very high-profile race where you have to raise a lot of money and watch everything that you say and make sure that your outfit is perfect and that your children are balanced and it seems like a lot of work, that's probably because it's a very, very competitive race. And that means every move that you make is a source of power for you. So you shouldn't shy away from it either because someone's going to do it. Someone's going to take on that risk. Someone is going to reap that reward. Someone is going to play that game at that high stakes level. That person might as well be you. So Neri, this year, this cycle, we're seeing a disproportionate number of women running in a way that we have not seen in the past, which is great. Um, unfortunately, you're seeing more of those women aligned on the Democratic side of the political ledger than on the Republican side, but that's not entirely the case. You also see an uptick in Republican women running. Are you, um, talk a little bit about that. Has the, have the numbers increased to, in, a, in a manner that you feel like is, we're beginning to get a bit more balance and that some of these issues that women are beginning mm-hmm. to recognize more and more that they should be running? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those kind of metrics are really hard to quantify uh, because you can have lots of candidates, but not a lot of those candidates um, are in races that they can win. Right. You can have a scenario whereby, quite frankly, you can have seven or eight women running against each other in a primary, for example, but only one of them comes out of the primary. So at that moment, do you say, oh, eight women are running for the seat? Well, only one is going to get elected. Right. So the numbers, right, the aggregate numbers and, and sort of trying to quantify this movement becomes uh, difficult in a sense. Right. We are tracking every candidate that has filed so that we know how many Republican women candidates are filing for state-level seats. Uh, but we are targeting uh, the competitive seats with women candidates. And I think that's what makes the difference, right? The difference is not having hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of women. I think that's an important movement. I suggest any woman that wants to run for office to just go for it if they can. However, you know, the difference with our project is that we focus on elected officials. And uh, we will put all of our investments into that woman that can really make the difference. And that is why over the past couple years, we've spent almost $20 million and have gotten almost 400 new women elected into office. Now that was the result of thousands of candidates. But in the end, what mattered is that we put our money where our mouth is and we helped to bring these women into the fold. And these women were the catalyst for a lot of our political strategy. They were leading the way. And they were the women that uh, took this, the final seat in control of the chamber or ran for the, the most highly contested special election that year. Or they were the ones that led the most competitive efforts that we have 
And that's that's what made them so powerful and so important uh, politically. And that's what uh, sort of guaranteed that the committee would see them as a good return on investment. Don't you think, too, having more women in the pro- certainly more women elected, but more women in the process who are running for office also creates this role model effect, potentially. Yes. That yes. by seeing more mm-hmm. women doing it, then you potentially see yourself, and if you're a young woman, see the potential to do that at some point. So talk about role modeling mm-hmm. and, the, and the role that it plays. Yes, this can not be understated also. I grew up in Miami. I'm a Cuban-American. My parents are the daughter, uh, they're refugees. You know, my grandparents had to flee Cuba in the 1960s. My parents grew up in New York. I was born in Miami. And I was born uh, basically in the district of uh, Congresswoman Ileana Ross Layton, mm. you know, who was the first Hispanic female woman ever elected to Congress. I think she was probably the first Hispanic Republican elected to Congress. Um, and she had already blaze that trail at the state level as well. So I grew up with that role model uh, that basically I saw her run around, knock on doors and meet with, you know, uh, people and uh, go up and advocate for our issues in Congress. And we just saw her everywhere. She's one of the best retail politicians in the country. You saw this woman everywhere. And she always embodied this sort of, uh, you know, the way that women connect with other people, the way that, you know, her very vivacious, you know, Cuban personality just resonated with me and with everybody else like me. So to see someone like uh, Congresswoman Ileana Ross Layton just do her job in the district, you grew up understanding that, well, that could also be you because that's her and that's not a thing. It's not an issue. It's not a hurdle. I never went through any process that told me I could not do this because I was a Hispanic woman. The Hispanic woman that I knew was the only one that ever represented the district. So, you know, when you grow up with that sort of role model, when you when you grow up seeing women embody these positions of power or embody uh, these roles, there's never a point where you say that you can't do it when you are actually watching somebody do it at that moment. And that, that does... Um, make a huge difference in uh, in your belief that, that you belong. Neri, why is this work important to you? I think it's important for me because without being too cliche, I, I'm very patriotic, you know? I understand that I've been given the privilege by God himself to have been born and raised in just the freest country in the world, you know, and I saw I know I sound really red meat right now, but it's absolutely true. You know, uh, my parents, my great grandparents were exiled from Spain. Then my gran- grandparents were exiled from Cuba. And, you know, my parents grew up in New York and I grew up in Miami. And now here I am in D.C. working in national politics. And and I really do believe that this is the only country where you can do that in um, or really one of the best countries to do that in. And uh, for me, the opportunity to run around the rest of this great country and convince regular people like myself to be involved in politics is a real privilege. It's a real privilege, and, and it makes me very passionate. One of the other, um, you know, 
stories that I tell that I think has convinced a lot of people to run for office is that when I tell my story, I tell it from that perspective. And I say to myself, look, I I understand how politics works in Latin America. I understand how Western democracies work uh, in Europe. And I do believe that this is the most egalitarian country uh, in the world and that regular people can run and win elected office and can be a part of the process. And because I've lived through two generations of exiles, uh, I understand that whether you are involved in politics or not, it will still involve you. So you might as well have some skin in the game. You might as well get involved to the degree that you can. And lucky for you, you can. You are able to. You don't have to be part of the elite. You don't have to be, you know, ultra wealthy. You don't have to be super educated. You don't have to come from, you know, a special family or some, uh, you know, special class of people like you do even in other Western democracies in Europe. You don't have to have graduated from Harvard. All these things are wonderful. They're not to be diminished. But that's not a requirement to be involved in the in the political process. And uh, constitutionally, there are so many opportunities to be involved. You could be city council, you could be school board, you could be state rep, you could be in Congress, you could be a senator, you could be a state senator, you could be the head of your PTA, you could be, you know, the, the president of a trade association. And you have all these opportunities to have your voice heard. And I think the the opportunity to do that is something more people should take advantage of and have their voice heard. Because if their voice is not heard, then who's going to tell their story? And uh, and the the passion for me is is being able to find people whose stories should be told, whose leadership should be at the forefront of American policy, and who really embody the beauty, the freedom, and the egalitarian nature of this great country. And uh, and I'm proud of those leaders because those leaders are the ones uh, really creating a, a better country for us. You know, in the next generation. That's beautiful. Thank you, Neri. So. What's your best advice or life hack? That piece of advice that you always give to other people, whether it's a candidate or not, or a piece of advice that someone's given to you that you constantly refer back to. Is there like Mm -hmm. one thing that you would leave our listeners with that is kind of your guiding light? Get a life. (laughs) What do you mean by that? I do. I mean that ambition is important. You know, uh, careers are important. Um, you should always strive for what you feel that you should do, where you feel like you belong. You know, nothing should ever stop you from doing these things. But it is more important who you are than what you do, ultimately. One of my favorite quotes uh, is from Maya Angelou, and she was uh, one of my favorite poets growing up. And uh, she had a quote that says, people will forget what you say, people will forget what you do, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And it is one of my favorite life quotes because it really is that is what life is about. It's also a very good political quote. If you're trying to be in politics, your number one goal is to be liked and for people to vote for you. But people will tell, people can tell if you're real or you're not. People can sense if you're authentically serving them or if you're not. So whether you are aspiring to career in politics or just living your best life, you have to be real with yourself and you have to get your own life. You have to understand who you are as a person and you have to do the things that make you who you are, that get at the core of who you are and develop that core 
and be consistent and authentic to that core. And that is the best life advice I think uh, anyone uh, should adopt. And it also helps you find the balance and be grounded in whatever it is that you aspire to do in the future. Neri, that's great. Thank you for you for being you. You're amazing. We are so delighted to have you. Oh, it's my pleasure here today. Um, you can learn more about Neri on our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. Neri, thanks again for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. You're wonderful, Laura. Thanks everyone for listening. 